Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. This episode is airing on Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. Hello, everyone. This is Shannon, and I think I have um, at least wished I could enter a time warp. I started to record this episode, and I decided that the date was actually sometime in January. Mm, No. Anyway, I am here today to bring you an author interview with the phenomenal Stephanie Robel, who wrote Darling Rose Gold, so definitely stay tuned for that. It was a lot of fun to interview her. The book is fantastic. I hope every one of you who loves dark and twisty thrillers will pick it up. It is amazing. And then, of course, I have some information about this week's new releases. But before we can get to all that good stuff, here is your usual housekeeping information. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. And then let's get on with the interview. I was fortunate enough to chat with Stephanie um, on the day after her book released. So this is coming to you now a little under a week later, and I hope you have as much fun listening to it as I did chatting with her. Welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and I am joined today by author Stephanie Robel, whose debut novel, Darling Rose Gold, was released in the U.S. yesterday, at the time of this recording anyway. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I always want to start out by having authors give listeners a brief introduction to the book that we're talking about. So could you tell listeners a little bit about Darling Rose Gold? Sure. So it's a story of a mother and daughter named Patty and Rose Gold Watts. And unbeknownst to Rose Gold, she was poisoned by Patty for her entire childhood for 18 years. And Patty goes to prison for these abuses. And my book starts when Patty is getting out of prison, at which point the now adult Rose Gold makes this calculated decision to take her in. And it's sort of this battle of wills uh, between the two. And this mystery unfolds as we wonder what exactly Rose Gold's motivation was in taking her mother in. So I think one of the most effective things about the novel is the fact that not only are we seeing things from the two perspectives after Patty gets out of prison, but we also go back in time and spend some time in Rose Gold's head in like the the time leading up to Patty's release. 
Could you talk a little bit about what made you decide to write the story in kind of a dual timeline way? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, the main mystery of what are each of these women up to is in Patty's point of view. Uh, but a lot of the character development that Rose Gold goes through is in the five years when she's alone. And these are important because they're bookended by her mother going to prison and then her mother getting out of prison. So it's really the first time in her life that she's been independent and not under the thumb of her mother. And so we watch her, you know, get a job and get her own apartment and really try to learn how to be in the world for the first time. And, you know, she has her small successes and failures and goes back and forth and she does her best. But I think that's so critical to understand where she ends up. Mm hmm. I imagine that this would have been a really difficult topic to research. Like I know um, when I've read a couple of memoirs that deal with Munchausen by proxy, um, a lot of those were just really, really difficult to read. I also um, followed the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case and a lot of the things that, you know, we heard people talking about throughout that case were just really, really sad. So how was it for you to do this kind of research, like for the extended time that it would take you to write a book like this? Yeah, I think, you know, it's definitely heartbreaking to read a lot of the outcomes and sort of what happened to these typically to children. Um, but I was most interested in what was going on in the minds of these people, specifically of the perpetrators. And so I tried to focus on the psychology of it and to understand the backgrounds of these. It's often women who are the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the abuse is horrible and sad, but I tried not to have it on the page unless, you know, absolutely necessary. So a lot of the things that have happened to Rose Gold when she was a kid we hear just sort of a summary about them rather than living them because, uh, you know, I don't think that frankly that we needed to. And also, you know, a reader's imagination can often supply uh, sort of more horror than the reader's pen even can. I would agree with that. I, I really, when I picked this up, I was kind of wondering like, oh, are there just going to be like pages of like, you know, memories of abuse or descriptions of abuse. And I was really pleased that things were kind of alluded to. We knew various things had happened, but you did not inundate the reader with like all this just really tough, heartbreaking um, descriptions of things. And so I, I appreciated that a lot. How did you go about kind of understanding the mind of the perpetrator? Because I've never seen any kind of accounts like written by um, anyone who has been diagnosed with this. So what did you do to sort of get inside Patty's mind? Yeah, you're right. I, I have also not come across any firsthand accounts. I would be fascinated to read one, but I can understand why none have been written because usually yeah. people, people with Munchausen by proxy typically don't admit that anything's wrong or that they have an illness. Um, so Obviously, they're not looking to uh, write anything out about it. But what I did for the perpetrators was uh, read a medical textbook. I read a lot of news articles, like some of the stuff you uh, referenced. And then I just built a profile. And so what are the characteristics that someone has to have? And that includes, you know, manipulative behavior, um, just a ton of lying. And sometimes... <laughs> from what I've read that, you know, the line can actually become blurred where some of them are not totally able to tell whether they're lying or not because they're doing it so much. 
um, charisma, which is a part that we don't like to think about, but really like that's what is fascinating is these are not just one dimensional people, you know, they have their own histories of childhood abuse and neglect that are very sad. And so I just thought it would be such a meaty challenge to certainly, I, you know, I wouldn't expect a reader to sympathize or think that, you know, Patty is in the right in any way. But I think if I can get the reader to empathize, even for a page or a paragraph or a sentence, then I've done my job to just sort of expand our understanding of victim and perpetrator. And I think that is sort of a struggle that we all have just as being, you know, part of being human is that we see people who do things that we think are reprehensible and rarely do we stop and say, but like, why, why does someone choose to behave this way? What has, has formed them? And so I really liked that we could kind of see how Patty came to this, even if, as you said, like, I didn't think like, oh, well, you know, of course I understand how, like, why you do these things, but I really was fascinated by kind of her journey, um, even though a lot of it kind of wasn't on the page, but you have all these sort of illusions to her, her childhood and her like early years that you know were not great for her in a different way, of course then they weren't great for rose gold. Yeah, and I think that's born of, you know, born of the research, which is that almost universally, at least from from what I've read, people who have this illness like did have these horrible childhoods and there's plenty of people who have terrible childhoods that grow up and are, you know, functioning sane, delightful adults. So obviously this is not a a universal trend by any stretch, but it is just I think it's always worthwhile to sort of stop and examine why people are the way they are and why they've become the adults they are. And I think like examining that with a bit of nuance is, is called for. Yes. And definitely this novel is full of, of nuance, both in Patty's perspective and in the perspective of Rose Gold, because I think what listeners will find when they pick this book up is that it's really hard. At least it was for me to like, either woman like completely you know I could empathize with both of them at different points but I could also be very um, put off by you know some of their their behaviors and I think that's part of what makes such a lush reading experience to actually feel as though the characters are multifaceted yeah, I think, you know, I knew I had a challenge set out in front of me to to have a main character who does as despicable of things as Patty does is, you know, it's a challenge because as readers, we want to find some shred of humanity, right? Like we typically don't want to just read someone who's evil all the time. And no. so I think I think finding those little nuggets, like whether it's her childhood or even, you know, when she first brings Rose Gold home from the hospital and she's really worried because she isn't breathing right and she just wants some reassurance that she will be okay. And I think, I mean, I don't have children, but I imagine that's a near universal fear of parents when they're, you know, when they're new parents and very vulnerable is just, I want to make sure my kid's okay. I want the best for them. And so bringing those things to the forefront and to light and Patty, I think does make her more humane and it's harder to just say straight villain nothing else can be said about her end of story so i have read some 
some criticism of your choices for for Patty, and without necessarily going into like spoiler territory, um, you know, people say that like Munchausen's by proxy is a mental illness, and that in some ways um, the story sort of promotes like punishing people for their mental illness. And yet, as I read it, that was not the impression that I was getting. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what your views kind of were for Patty and what you hoped to have readers take away from the story? Sure. I think, you know, I think good fiction certainly should not be preaching or saying anything should be a certain way or not. I think it's, I think it's better off positing more questions than providing answers, which is what I'm trying to do with this book. And so, you know, I think it's, to say that the the takeaway of the story is that people with MSPB deserve to be punished, I think maybe lacks a little of the nuance that we've been talking about. That's kind of like saying, you know, Gone Girl is a story that's saying like all, well, this is kind of a spoiler. Sorry if you haven't read Gone Girl, but all, <laughs> you know, girl. all cheating husbands deserve to be, you know, trapped in a marriage or framed for murder. And I think, yes. you know, that's, that's just like not the case, you know, like this is just, I mean, it is a suspense novel, so there's going to be some stuff that happens and you know who's to say like I think that's part of the the interest of the story I hope is that we kind of question at the end like did Patty deserve what happened to her like how much of this is her fault versus not and so that's the conversation that I hope readers will have. So this is your first novel so what is your background kind of before you decide you just uh, sat down and decided to write a book? So I worked in advertising as a copywriter for seven years before this, and so I was writing a lot of TV and radio and print, and all of that really helped to just, you know, hone my writing skills and and especially the art of concision and just really getting rid of any extraneous thoughts and sentences. Um, And then it was between freelance jobs a long period between freelance jobs, I should say, that I felt like, you know what, I've always wanted to write a book. I'm not getting any younger. I don't feel like I have a lot to lose right now. And then I decided to apply to MFA programs and really try my hand at writing uh, a novel. So can you explain a little bit about what the MFA program was like and how you um, found it helpful to your craft now? Sure. Um, So I think with MFA programs, and I suppose this is true of school in general, but, you know, you get in as much, uh, or I should say you get out as much as you put in. And I knew going into it that to the extent possible, I wanted to have a finished novel or, you know, a publishable novel. And so I really, I worked toward that. I I signed up for novel workshops as soon as as I could. And took the first four or five chapters of this book um, through my MFA program. And then the best thing that happened to me during that time was I started working with um, a professor who became my mentor named Mako Yoshikawa. Um, she's a staff member there and she also has written books of her own. And she really shepherded me through the entire writing process. She read every chapter. She ended up being my thesis advisor, which is what Rose Gold became. And she just really taught me the ropes, honestly. It was like a, it was like a two-year uh, crash course in novel writing. That's amazing. Yes, I, was, I feel so lucky every day that I met her. Like, it really feels like <laughs> my lucky stars were just, I don't know, like it was kismet or something. So once you were finished with your program, 
how much sort of extra, not really extra, but additional um, like tweaking and editing went into kind of the book that is now out in the world? So I would say the majority of the huge changes happened during the MFA program. Um, I did, I made a couple small like plot hole type changes with my agent before we took it out. And then with my editors, it was a lot of, you know, strengthening the storylines, but nothing major changed in terms of plot or character development. It was just kind of sharpening um, what was already there. And as you were writing the book, how much did you actually know about where the characters would end up? Like, did you sit down and kind of outline it um, completely or did certain things surprise you as you were writing? It was pretty outlined. I, I personally like to have some sort of a plan because I feel like that takes some of the pressure off of having to write 90,000 words. Um, ah. so, yeah, I like to have, even though, you know, a lot of times I'll end up doing something different, but it's almost just like a security blanket is like, okay, I have my one sentence summary of what should happen in each chapter. And that kind of takes a load off to let me focus on the words. You know, I think for me, a lot of people say it would take the joy out of writing, um, if they had to plan everything ahead. But for me, I think like trying to come up with the action at the same time as, just describe what's happening and develop characters like that would just be so daunting to do everything at once. So I do mm -hmm. think having, you know, having some sort of blueprint sort of eases the anxiety. I can see that. I've always been really fascinated by the ways in which writing is like so individual because people even like you have people who outline like you just said, but even so you'll have people who say, but you know, as I like followed my outline, I realized that this just wasn't working anymore. And I just totally, you know, let the characters kind of guide the story. And there's just so much individuality in the way that people write. And I, I really love that. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm I mean, I'm personally fascinated by people who don't plot ahead of time, because I think it it does sound like such a romantic way to write a book. You know, you like open up your computer and you're like, we'll see what happens today. It, it sounds very <laughs> nice, uh, but I think I would be a train wreck if I tried to do it that way. I imagine it would be really difficult to, to like have no real idea where you're headed. Um, like for me, I think that would make me really anxious. Just well, to be like, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too is I think you're just doing a lot more rewriting, you know, like you're, you're trying things out on the page and you don't know where it's going. So you may be starting over more often, or, mm -hmm. you know, you may be going back more. Now, all that said, as an outliner, I'm still like not completely starting over with the second draft, but rewriting more than half of it. So just because you outline doesn't mean you're going to, you know, go through in one draft and it's ready to turn in. <laughs> That would be kind of amazing, like just write yeah. your first draft and be like, okay, this is it. Yeah, I will say since starting, you know, people who are churning out a book every year or people who are doing it even more frequently than that, I have a lot of respect because it is not as easy as, you know, people make it look. Oh my gosh, like Nora Roberts, who can yes. like sit down and like write four books a year. <laughs> I know, I'm just, what is your secret, Nora? And I remember <laughs> reading a piece from Danielle Steele too, like an interview where she I don't know. She said she like doesn't she sleeps like a few hours a night. And I was like, well, OK, I mean, <laughs> that's an unfair advantage. But yeah, no, it's incredible. I, I, I kind of like my sleep. I wouldn't want to. <laughs> yeah. So what is coming next for you? Like, are you wanting to write something else or kind of what are you um, what are you planning yeah, now so that I, this book I, is out in the world? I'm so I'm at work on my second draft of my second book, which is about uh, a wellness center that has some cult like tendencies. 
Ooh. Yes, which it seems like the cults are universally fascinating, so that feels like a good start. But it's written from three points of view, which is uh, the leader, a member, and the member's sister who's kind of trying to pull her out of the situation. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I do find cults um, really fascinating, both from kind of like the member perspective and also like what goes on in someone's head as they're, you know, trying to get people to believe, like, whatever it is that they believe. So yes, I'm exactly. very excited about that. Thank you. So are you a reader, kind of, like, when you're not writing? Or do you read things, um, like, do you read fiction while you're writing? Like, what does your reading life look like? I am constantly reading. There's never really a point in time when I'm not. So I, I can still read fiction while I'm writing. I would say you know, to do research ahead of time, I'll, I'll sometimes read novels about the topic that I'm writing about. So, you know, I'll check out if there were, for example, any uh, novels on Munchausen by proxy. And I would read that before, but I would, I would definitely stay away from reading things on the same topic while I'm writing, because I would never want anything to accidentally transfer into something that I've written. Right. But that's that really the, the only thing I would say. So have you read a bunch of like really great things about cults then? As you oh were my God, preparing? so many. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've that, gone that's really kind of deep. Amazing. Yeah, I've gone really deep on, you know, especially on nonfiction stuff. Um, there's so many good books written about cults from the 60s and 70s. And these aren't books, they're more news articles. But I've been surprised mm -hmm. to actually find some modern day cults uh, that are operating right now or being investigated right now. It's crazy to think that in this time in age that cults can still operate and you know the only cults that we know about are the ones that basically get discovered and kind of disbanded there are tons and tons of cults that we just don't know about because they're doing they're doing it well you know which is scary to think of <laughs> you know i never really thought about that but i guess that's true like we don't know yeah. About the cults that are sort of, I don't know, like in process right now. Like Yeah, like the most successful cults are not the ones that you know, we've heard of because they're keeping it, keeping it quiet. I think one of my favorite cult related books um, was The Singing Bone by Beth Hahn <laughs> um, that came out a couple of years ago. I just I really, really loved that. I am writing that down because I haven't read that one, but now I'm intrigued. <laughs> Yeah, it was very, very good. I want to say it's like 2016 or 2017 it came out. And it was right around the same time that um, Emma Klein's The Girls mm -hmm. was released. Um, but I thought that The Singing Bone was just so, so excellent. Oh, I'll have to read it once I'm done writing mine. <laughs> yes, probably not uh, not before. But it's a, just a really fantastic look at like how somebody gets swept up in the cult and then what happens kind of when, you know, the cult is not around anymore. You know, in the case of like a cult that gets discovered and kind of, you know, put out of commission, what is it like for kind of the people left behind? And I, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, so an interesting group. Have you read anything fantastic that you would like to recommend to listeners? We are pretty big on book recommendations here and authors have some of the best ones, I think. Yeah. So I just finished Followers by Megan Angelo. Have you read oh, this one? Not yet. I have okay. it here. So it's two timelines. And the first timeline is 30 years in the future in this Californian village called Constellation, which 
is comprised of government-appointed celebrities who basically live their lives 24-7 in front of a camera, which I think is a fascinating oh. and terrifying idea. And then the other timeline is these two women uh, named Orla and Floss, and they are basically willing to do whatever it takes to make it big and become famous. And so it, the story juxtaposes between these two timelines, and it's just so imaginative, and it's funny, and the writing is super crisp, so I highly recommend that one. Is sitting on my iPad. I just have to uh, move it up on my queue of like <laughs> endless things to read. I know that's the eternal battle, right? Is like yes. jockeying for position of what comes next. Yes, and I get like so many arcs, um, like you know, for the podcast, and I'm just mm. like, oh my gosh, there's such great things coming out. Yeah, it's a good problem. So, though. it is. It is, especially now, like in kind of this time of like social distancing and. You know, yeah. a lot of things are close. I don't know where you are. I think you're not in the U.S. Is that right? Or yeah, I'm you? in London. No, I'm in London. Oh. So yeah. do you have, like, all of the, uh, like, closures and stuff like we have in the U.S.? Yeah, it's just starting now. I think it's a few days, maybe even a week behind what the, the U.S. has done. Um, but it's been interesting watching it unfold on two continents because I, I am from the U.S. And so a lot of the news that I still read is, you know, U.S.-based organizations. So it's kind of interesting to have that dual perspective and see how the different responses go. So as a writer, I've heard people say, you know, writing is a sort of solitary job. Um, do you find like this whole idea of social distancing? Like, are you one of those people who's kind of like bouncing off the walls or are you able to kind of like tuck in and like settle into it um, knowing that kind of you, like your work is, is with you? Oh, I'm like completely, I mean, besides I, I had my book tour canceled and some event cancellations, which is a, a huge bummer. But other oh. than that, like my, my day to day is completely unchanged. I keep telling people I've been like practicing you know, self-isolation for 33 years. Like I am ready and I can keep <laughs> working. It is fine. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So are you doing any like virtual online, um, like book touring or are there ways that uh, readers can connect with you during this time since we won't get to see you in person? Yeah, so my publishing teams are still working on, you know, kind of working out the kinks to those events, but there will be some online stuff for sure. I think I'll probably do some Instagram takeovers. So if they want to stay, you know, posted and up to date on news, um, I'm the most active on Instagram and my handle is Stephanie Robel, or I post updates on my website, which is stephanierobel.com. All right. I know that I'm looking forward to a few of the um, virtual events that are coming up this, you know, over the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't usually go to a lot of like in-person um, book events. So I think it's kind of cool that, you know, not that I think like this virus is great, but <laughs> I think it's kind of cool that these are kind of being brought to some people who don't necessarily um, you get to experience. You know, like I don't go to like book conferences. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to kind of connecting with more authors and just seeing, you know, what they're up to and, participating a little bit differently in the whole like book release process. Yeah, I think it's really, it's been inspiring to see the way that people have just rallied and just kind of, you know, gotten on with it and said, okay, like we need a plan B and this is what we're going to do. And it's been so lovely to see the support from other authors and from bookstores and just, you know, librarians. I, I've really been overwhelmed this week and it's just been wonderful to, to have that support. So is Darling Rose Gold also out in the UK now? 
Yes, so it's called The Recovery of Rose Gold here, and it came out March 5th, so it's been out a couple weeks here. Can you explain to me in the couple minutes that we have left um, why sometimes there are different titles when a book is published in more than one country? I know that's a thing that people talk about quite a bit. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I have a solid answer, but what I've gained, like what I've learned from being on the inside is basically each publishing team thinks that the title that they have come up with is the best for their market. And basically they want to sell the book in the best position it can be sold. And that doesn't necessarily always overlap with, with titles, with covers. So it's been quite interesting to watch that all happen. So then you kind of have to refer to it um, by both names, depending on who you're talking to and which market um, you're focused on, I'm guessing. Yeah, you know, it's funny in shorthand because they're kind of longer titles. People have generally started referring to it as rose gold. So I'm lucky in that sense that they both ah. have rose gold. But yeah, I am worried that, you know, I'll get on a call or something and accidentally call it the wrong title. But, <laughs> you know, I guess that's the risk that you take when you give an author multiple titles. I suppose that's true. Well, I want to thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me a bit today. Um, I hope that you stay safe and healthy and good luck um, on your next book. This one was really a pleasure to read. So I'm excited for what you have next. Oh, thank you so much, Shannon. This was such a nice chat. And again, this was an interview with Stephanie Robel, author of Darling Rose Gold, which is out now. And I highly recommend you pick it up. Okay, now for the week's new book releases. So this one, this week is not a super big release week, but there are some really phenomenal books coming out. Um, a bunch of us are super excited this week here at Book Bistro. So the first few books are books that you've heard us talk about before on our most anticipated books of March episode. And Stacy would be very angry with me if I talked about another book before I talked about this one. So let's talk about The Sinner, Black Dagger Brotherhood, number 18, by J.R. Ward. There are many of us on Book Bistro that love this series. Kristen, Stacy, Sarah, me, Christine. Um, I think Brooke has read, if not all of them, um, some of them. And Natalie, who used to be a presenter here on the podcast, um, is also a big fan of the series. So anyway, this book is finally out. I'm so excited. Again, it's The Sinner, Black Dagger Brotherhood, number 18, by J.R. Ward. Stacy also talked about the new Sonia Lolly book, and that is out this week as well. This is called Grown Up Pose. Min is super excited about the new N.K. Jemisin book, and this is one that I have been pretty excited for as well. Um, it's The City We Became, and once again, it's by N.K. Jemisin. Now, for the book that I am super excited for, Between Burning Worlds, System Divine, book two, by Jessica Brody and Joanne Rendell. It's out finally. It is the conclusion to the Les Mis retelling set in space. Um, if I could like drop everything and read it right now, I totally would, but I have some other things I need to read first. So I'm going to reward myself with this book when I have done everything that I'm supposed to do. 
Brooke is super excited for The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. That one was supposed to actually come out in February, but they pushed it back um, to the end of March. So it's finally here as well. And Sarah talked about If I Never Met You by Mary McFarland. And this is an author that I haven't read, but I think Stacy has read a couple of hers um, and really enjoyed them as well. So those are some books that you've heard us talk about before. And then I have, of course, some stuff that we haven't talked about. So first up on this list is Pike, and it's book one in the Pond Duet by T.M. Frazier. And this author writes a lot of like dark romances, some motorcycle club romance. So this one is a dark romance with a revenge plot. And I can't tell you much more than that because the synopsis is pretty vague. But if you've enjoyed uh, Fraser's work in the past, you might want to check it out. So this is Pike Pond Duet, book one by T.M. Fraser. And we will kind of hang on to the dark romance theme here and talk about Lawless Kingdom, Rain and Ruin, book one by Natalie Bennett. And this is the first in a series. Apparently this one is less dark than later books in the series will be. So if you read this and you find that it's difficult for you, you'll know that the rest of the books um, will be even darker and probably not up your alley. So this is another, as I say, dark romance um, about two kind of ill-fated lovers who live uh, very different lives and probably shouldn't end up together, but somehow do. So this is Lawless Kingdom, Rain and Ruin, book one by Natalie Bennett. And how about a mystery? This is Blue on Blue by Dal McLean. And the author was a Lambda Award finalist um, a couple of years ago. And so this is a standalone mystery about a private investigator who is determined to bring down a notorious gang boss. But this causes a lot of problems for our intrepid hero, um, both professionally and personally. So this, once again, is Blue on Blue, and it is by Dal McLean. And, of course, we have another kind of mystery thriller book. This is Hope Close by Tina Seskis. And it's about a perfect street with perfect houses. But the people who live there, their lives might not be so perfect after all. If you're interested, it's Hope Close by Tina Seskis. All right, let's talk about something a little science fiction-y. This is Lakewood. The author is Megan Giddings. And this is a debut novel that is part Handmaid's Tale and part The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So a little bit dystopian, some medical experimentation perhaps. I'm pretty excited about it. It is Lakewood by Megan Giddings. We also have a debut novel, The Return, by Rachel Harrison, and this is female-centric horror. It has a little bit of a thriller vibe, but it's definitely a horror novel set in what might be a haunted hotel. Um, I read an early copy of this and was blown away. 
um, by the power and the beauty of Harrison's writing. So if you enjoy horror um, with strong female characters and just really lovely writing, definitely check it out. It's The Return by Rachel Harrison. Next up is The Everlasting. This is by Katie Simpson Smith, and it is a sweeping saga of love set in Rome during four different centuries. This novel spans 2,000 years. I am so excited. I love big historical novels. I just, I cannot wait for this one. So it is The Everlasting, and it's by Katie Simpson Smith. And Natalia is a big Christina Lauren fan. And for those of you who also enjoy um, lighthearted contemporary romances, I have to recommend, or not really recommend, I guess, because I haven't read it, but I have to let you know that The Honey Don't List by Christina Lauren is out this week. So definitely check that out if you are a fan of their um, previous books or if you're just looking for something new and contemporary that is going to be fun and kind of keep you entertained during these dark and trying times. Again, it's the Honey Don't List, and it's by Christina Lauren. And I'm going to wrap up here with a few more mysteries. Um, this is The Double Mother, and it's by Michelle Bussy. It is the story of a child's psyche and what happens when someone tries to manipulate that memory. Um, I'm not sure of much more, but I'm really intrigued. I love dark thrillers. So this one is The Double Mother, and it's by Michelle Bussey. So a couple of years ago, I read Jane Doe by Victoria Helen Stone, and I was really excited about it. I love revenge novels and I read it and it was okay it wasn't the best thing I ever read it wasn't the worst thing I ever read so that's Jane Doe and now we have Problem Child which is Jane Doe book two and again the author is Victoria Helen Stone so Jane Doe is back and it seems that she's met her match apparently she is contacted by someone from her estranged family and apparently all does not go well so if you are intrigued, you want to check it out, it's Problem Child, Jane Doe, number two, and it is by Victoria Helen Stone. And last up, this is The Herd. It's by Andrea Bartz, and this is one of the most anticipated thrillers of the year. I have heard so much early buzz about this book. I was not able to get an early copy, but I'm super excited. So the founder of this very prestigious all-women organization has gone missing and this woman's closest friends and associates are determined to uncover the truth but apparently there will be a cost for that um, you know whenever you go poking around into someone's secrets you are likely to learn stuff that you don't want to know so this is The Herd and it is by Andrea Bartz and I will definitely be picking it up so that is all I have for you today. I hope all of you are staying as safe and as healthy and as sane as you can as we deal with some really difficult times, not just in the U.S., but around the world. I am sending you all warm thoughts and positive energy. 
Um, just do whatever you need to do to stay safe. And of course, be kind and thoughtful um, to those around you. The world definitely needs more books and more kindness. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.